So in your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to go ahead and open with me to Acts chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 24 as you heard James read. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 24. You know, over the last number of years, I've been very encouraged to take up reading missionary biographies. I've been encouraged by these stories because they often uh, chronicle just stories of faithfulness of brothers and sisters who have sacrificed much for the sake of Christ and how they've grown so close to Christ even in the midst of that suffering. A while back, for example, I was introduced to one autobiography by a missionary named Sam James. He's actually from North Carolina, and he wrote a book called The Making of a Servant. And in it, James chronicles how he was called to the mission field along with his family and how he was used by God to accomplish great things for him, but the focus was not on him. He titles his book The Making of a Servant because he wanted to give glory to how the Father shaped and molded him to be a servant for Christ on the mission field. And so in this book, he details many lessons that the Lord taught him about what it meant to be a servant of the Lord. James and his family, though, were called to a very difficult place. You see, they served in Vietnam in the early to mid-60s, and as many of you know, much of that time was marked by the Vietnam War. And so they served under the auspices of this war, this challenging time, and the pages are filled with many accounts of how God worked even in spite of those circumstances to bring and to bear much gospel fruit through their ministry, but it wasn't without significant cost and risk. Just to give one picture, I'll share one story that I think captures well this willingness to uh, obey Christ in suffering and how he did it through great cost. You see, at one point in his journeys, James was called uh, at the invitation of a, a woman who they'd actually sent out and worked with who was working at a rural school, and he was invited by them to come share about the true meaning of Christmas and to also share about the gospel. This was going to be a pioneering work, they thought, by inviting him to this remote area that this woman who invited him, who served as a teacher, would then have a platform to be able to follow up with the students and with the parents there, and hopefully share the gospel with them. But the problem was this journey from where he was living to this remote village, it was about a five-hour drive, was fraught with danger. As a matter of fact, just two weeks prior to him obeying eventually to go to this village, there was a Philippine missionary family, including a baby, who was shot and killed by Viet Cong soldiers who were lying in wait on the side of the road. And then they plundered their wealth and everything that was on them and went on their leave. And so trembling, Sam James comes before the Lord in prayer and says, should I do this? And he and his wife felt that he should. And he had gotten some reassurances that that road had been a little bit safer, but nothing could have prepared him from an earthly standpoint for what he faced on that road. You see, as he was rounding a bend pretty close to this village, he came upon a blockade, a mound of dirt that was blocking his way. He had heard about these blockades, similar to that Philippine missionary story, and how the Viet Cong soldiers would basically lay in the forest and wait for people to be built up, sort of like in a convoy, and then they would pounce upon them, they would kill them, and then they would steal their belongings and be on their way, leaving them just in the road. And so trembling, he comes to this blockade, and 
all of a sudden he was reminded of a devotion that he and his wife had read from Psalm 91, a beautiful psalm that testifies to the protection of the Lord for his people. And so he remembers that psalm, he prays and asks the Lord to give him a sense of peace. And that sense of peace swept over him, he says. It swept over him in such a way that he was able to think clearly about the environment he was in. And he looked to the right and he saw the outline of the soldiers who were laying in wait. But then he also looked to his left and he saw a pathway that led through the forest into some rice paddies where he thought maybe, just maybe, if I could take my car and go down there, I could be free from this. And so with still trembling a little bit, but with the peace and assurance of the Lord, he takes that way of escape and thankfully he was able to leave that difficult circumstance and made it to the school. But by the time he made it to the school, he hears the gunshots and the explosions for those who did not make their escape. And he later found out that everyone in that convoy was shot up in the crossfire between the Viet Cong and the Vietnamese military who came. And the people who were there stuck behind the blockade lost their lives. But his life was spared and his work continued. But it was always under threats like that. And in his commentary, James summarized it this way. He said, I learned through this experience that complete trust is followed by total obedience. I know how quickly life can be taken away, and I cannot, uh, cannot bear to waste one day of the life that God has given me. This life is now a new life of thankfulness for each day and is a desire to be obedient to His will, whatever the cost. Now, if you're like me, when you read a statement like that after the service and the story that we just heard, you probably think, that's amazing. And when I walk away from stories like that in these biographies, I think, yes, this is what it means to be completely focused on the mission of God, to trust Him completely, to obey Him completely, no matter the cost, right? This is what it means. And we're amazed and we're inspired by these examples, but I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can become too preoccupied by being focused on what they've done. What do I mean by that? Well, it's When you come to stories like this, sometimes you can focus on what they've done and what they've accomplished, and you can be positively motivated. You can say, man, if only I could do something like that, like that. But if you're like me, the negative emotions soon follow. You feel bad because you realized you don't think you can do something like that. What would my life look like if I was in that same situation? Would I be able to obey as passionately as James did? And when I came to Acts 20, thinking about that story and many others like them, I read these verses afresh and they gave me pause. You see, I began to ask the question as a result of this text, what if I and what if we were asking the wrong question about what it means to be faithful? What if we shouldn't first be concerned with what we ought to be doing, but instead on who we ought to be? You see, the doing of ministry is important. There are many lost and dying people in this world all around us, full of physical and spiritual need, and we're called to meet both of those needs in the power of the gospel. But my question, and I think our question as we come to this text, should be, what type of frame of mind, what kind of attitude of the heart do we need to have a life that's filled with this kind of faithfulness, that kind of boldness? And that kind of fruitfulness as rendered unto the Lord. 
I think today's verses give us the answer through the example of the Apostle Paul. And what we're going to see in this text is that faithfulness and effectiveness for the glory of the Lord requires not that we embrace a certain list of things to do, but rather that we first embrace our identity as servants of the King. So what are the makings of a servant, to borrow that title from Sam James? What characterizes a servant? Not just what they do, but who they are. I want to show you five things from this text that Paul exemplifies well, that if we can, mo- if we can follow after his model, I think we too can grow in our faithfulness to the king. So take a look again at verse 17. Looking a little bit at the context, Paul says, or sorry, rather Luke says, talking about ministry of Paul, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, let's pause right there. What's going on here in this text? Well, this is Paul's third missionary journey, and Paul has been circling back through churches that he had planted or that had been planted as a result of his ministry, and he's doing so with the intent to encourage the disciples in each of those places. This was quite common for Paul. He would go to a place, see a church planted, and then once it was built up and then there were leaders established there, he would move on to a new place. But when he moved on, it's not like he just left them high and dry. He had a deep love and an abiding passion and care for the people. And so he would follow up with letters or even circuits of visit like the one we're looking at here. And this third journey, uh, you can look, about, uh, look at it through Acts 18 through 20. Um, this third journey was marked by speed except for one place where he came to Ephesus. He had stayed there for a little more than two years working with the church to encourage them and to proclaim the gospel in the surrounding region. Paul had also been busy collecting funds for the alleviation of a famine in Jerusalem. This is written about elsewhere in his epistles, but Paul had a deep love and an affection for the church at Jerusalem, and they had been going through difficult times, and so he had been working through these circuits to also raise dollars that he could take to the church at Jerusalem to sustain them and to help them during the time of this famine. And Paul did eventually leave Ephesus only after a riot was started because of how he was sharing and how the church was sharing the gospel. If you want to talk about turning the world upside down, the cause of that riot was there were silversmiths and metal workers who made their money based off the fabrication of idols. But when the gospel was going forth, people were getting rid of their idols. They were burning them, melting them down. And so the silversmiths, the metalsmiths, they got angry. And they rallied up a rabble that was raised against Paul, and there was a riot formed, and it basically drove him out. And this persecution and pushback were very characteristic for Paul and his ministry. Paul was often followed by Jews who hated his message and did everything in their power to go against him. They would either try to attack the churches through false teaching, causing them to drift away from the gospel to re-embrace the legalism that had marked their religion, or they would attack Paul for his character and for what he did. Any way they could attack him, they did so, and this was a common thing that Paul endured. But because of that fierce persecution from the Jews, going to Jerusalem for Paul, this focus he had to go there, was a great trial. He knew that going to Jerusalem was likely going to result in his imprisonment and maybe even his death. And so right before he gets on a ship to head to Jerusalem, he's trying to make his way there quickly, he sends for the Ephesian elders to meet him in Miletus. 
It's a city on the way. And he does so so that he can share his gospel goodbye with them. And as verse 25 indicates, he assumed that this would be his last interaction with this. Listen to verse 25. It says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will see my face again. Paul thought that this was going to be his last time ever seeing these people because of the persecution that was ahead. And in this meeting with the Ephesian elders, verses 18 through 24, we have Paul recording his ministry and also later on giving a charge to these elders to encourage them in their faith before he departs from them. The first part, the verses we're looking at today, serve as a commentary on his ministry as a whole, where Paul is reflecting on the nature of his ministry and pedestaling himself as an example for them to follow. But then out of the overflow of that, which we don't have time to look today, the rest of the charge is an encouragement to them to go and do likewise. And so for Paul, this text serves as an example to us. Interestingly, this is the only speech of Paul's that we have recorded that was delivered to Christians. And so I believe the Lord includes it in the canon, not just for the Ephesian elders, but for us to look at as well. And so Paul in these verses calls attention to what he did and who he was among them as part of his final goodbye. And this is not a pride-filled Uh, means of trying to pedestal himself or make himself an example, not at all. Instead, he's doing so as a loving father to his spiritual children. He's saying, brothers, you know how I served among you, and by example, he wants them to go out and do the same. In the spirit of 1 Corinthians 11.1, what does Paul say there? He says, imitate me as I imitate or as I follow Christ. That's what he's doing in these verses. And so, what can we learn from Paul's example? Well, the first mark of a servant of the Lord that I think we see from this text, the first thing that makes a servant is that servants labor humbly. Look again at verses 18 through 19. Verse 18, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. Let's pause right there. It's very interesting that when Paul is setting up this charge he's giving to the Ephesian elders, he starts with this verb, this attribute of service. You see, Paul uses this verb a lot in Scripture, and it's the chief verb lens, I guess you could say, through which Paul views his ministry, that of service. And he says he serves with humility. What is this humility that Paul's speaking about? Well, I think Paul's humility is rooted in two things. I think it's rooted in his grace that he's received from the Lord, and then also from knowing his place in God's plan. So it's rooted in grace and place. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul was a man who knew God's grace. Those of you who may be familiar with the account of how Paul came to faith know that Paul was a man who was one of these Jewish persecutors, and the Lord met him on the road to Damascus as he was going to deliver papers of arrest and basically sovereignly interjected into Paul's life and completely transformed him. Paul was 
at one time uh, hostile to the Lord Jesus, but the risen Christ manifested himself to, to Paul. And as a result of that experience, Paul was forever transformed. He knew in that moment that the man he saw resurrected and glorious before him was the King of kings and was the Lord of lords. And he gave his life to him. He had experienced remarkable transformation. That the king of all the universe who gave his life as a ransom for ministry would die for even the likes of Paul and offer him not only forgiveness, but a role in his sovereign plan was astounding to him. He knew Jesus is king, that Jesus calls the shots. And he knew that he did not deserve this grace Listen to how Paul talks about his ministry from 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He knew that the grace of Christ was the only thing that sustained him and gave him purpose and identity, and he knew that he didn't deserve it. He knew the grace that God gives to sinners. And out of the abundance of the knowledge of that grace, he also knew his place. That word serve is chosen very intentionally by Paul. And it's an important theme in Scripture. You see, that word uh, brings about the the meaning of uh, of slave or bondservant or servant, as we call it in English today. But contextually, if you study what that meant during that time, it adds even more color to the meaning. You see, a servant who served under the household of a master was often entrusted with the master's belongings and with the master's household. So that, for example, when the master would go away or when he would take a long trip or something like that, the servant would basically function as the master in the household and would do things according to how the master would have them done. So another word you may see in Scripture related to this theme of servant or bondservant is that of steward. It was a stewardship where something was entrusted to them and they were supposed to do something with that which they were entrusted in order to serve the interests of the master. And that point is incredibly important for us and it was important for Paul. You see, he knew that his role was to serve the interests of the master, not his own interests. That's what it meant to be a servant I think of, uh, often when I think about this idea of service, I think of Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. You may be familiar with it, where Jesus tells the parable of a master who gave five talents, which is a a unit of of currency, uh, five talents of treasure, and then two talents of treasure, and then one talent of treasure to each of those three servants. And it says he gave it to them in accordance with their ability. And the master was known for how he desired and wanted uh, basically a return on his investment. And so while the master went away, two of the servants were called faithful. It had nothing to do with how much they were given. It had to do with what they did while the master was away. And so the servant who was given five talents used it, invested it, and got five talents more and received the commendation from the master, well done, good and faithful servant. Similarly, the servant who was given two doubled it and gave the master a return on his investment and received the same commendation. But then there was one servant who was given one talent, and he went and buried it in a field because he knew the master to be a shrewd man. And when the master returned and asked the servant what he had done with his talent, the servant said 
that he had done nothing with it to invest, but he at least didn't lose it. And what's interesting is what the master says. He said, you knew me to be a shrewd master, desiring a return on my investment, and yet you took the talent I entrusted to you and buried it in a field. He said, you should have at least taken it to the bank and at least put it there so that you could get interest while I was away, and yet you didn't even do that. And then he tells that servant, you are a wicked servant, depart from me into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What was the problem with that wicked servant? He didn't lose the talent. What was the problem with the servant is he did not use that talent in a way that represented the interests of the master. Paul saw his ministry that way. It was a stewardship entrusted to himself. He wanted to live his life in a way that testified to the stewardship that had been entrusted to him. And Paul sees himself as this kind of servant all over Scripture. He even starts that wonderful epistle to the Romans this way. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Even in this text, Acts 20, 24, he talks about how this is a ministry that he has received. It's not something he conjured up in and of himself by his own strength. No, it was something entrusted to him by the Master. And so he knew God's grace and he also knew his place. In Ephesians 3, 7 through 8, Paul writes this, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given to me by the working of his power. And to me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It was this knowledge of God's grace and this acknowledgement of his place that fueled his humility in service rendered unto the Lord. But Paul wasn't the best example of humility, was he? The Savior that he served was the best example of humility, and Paul knew that as well. John 13, 16, Jesus himself says, Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Paul saw his ministry, his service, his stewardship, the interests of the master, basically as an overflow of that which Christ had began as the perfect master. And there were two results that came from this humble labor rendered unto the Lord. This humility produced two fruits, and there's probably more, but two that I see in this text and in Paul's ministry. Firstly, Paul, as a result of this humility, saw his life as completely tied to his master's interests completely tied to the master's mission. And so Paul embraced daily that call to take up the cross and to follow Christ. And then result number two, interestingly, it also freed him from man's approval. We've used the phrase before to describe the apostles and specifically Paul. They had a humble boldness. Typically in our sin, humility and boldness are often against each other as characteristics. But what gave these apostles and these brothers and sisters humble boldness? Well, it was because they knew that if they were serving the interests of the king, that the interests of those around them didn't matter from a worldly perspective. Of course, he invested in their spiritual interests, but I mean he wasn't shirking back from the responsibility that was entrusted to him because of what the world thought. Listen to how Paul says it in Galatians 1.10. He says, for, I am now seek, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Grace is from God. Paul's identity and our identity is therefore rooted and comes from God. His life and our life are stewardships rendered only to Him. He's our audience. And so God is able to give us both boldness and humility in the labor. And so just by way of brief application here, I want to pause and ask the question, is fear of man in any way holding you back from serving the Lord? And if so, could it be because you haven't fully grasped God's grace and your place? I think all of us have room to grow in that. Amen? Paul knew the grace of the Lord. He knew his place as a servant. And as a result, he was humble and yet bold. And this compelled him as well to the second mark of humble service, which is Paul loved selflessly. Look again at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility, and then he goes on, and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You see, Paul was also a very compassionate man. Tears flowed freely when it came to the stewardship he had of other people's souls. And the suffering wasn't just external because of persecution. The suffering that Paul endured was internal as a result of this compassion as well. He was always pouring himself out for the interests of others because of a deep and abiding love and compassion that he had for them. Philippians 2.17, he says it this way, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This genuine love he had compelled him to do tremendous acts of service that were so selfless Think about the Corinthian church that was marked with all sorts of issues and division. He writes to that church in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. Was it because of the fear of man that he wrote out of anguish of heart? No, he said, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. Colossians 2, 1 through 2, as he's writing to encourage that church, he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all of those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged and being knit together in love. Paul's compassion for the lost and for the churches that he invested in was even so great that in Romans 9, He says that his anguish is such that he would even give up his own salvation if it meant that the Jewish people could know Christ and enjoy salvation in him. It's a tremendous claim. How did he have this type of vision? It was because Paul saw people the way that Jesus sees people, as sheep without a shepherd. And this motivated him to give and to love of himself sacrificially and selflessly. And this selflessness is hard, is it not, brothers and sisters? If you look at your life, would you not also agree that selflessness is hard? Why is that? I think it's because our love is naturally geared towards ourselves, right? 
It's hard to have others focus love when we're looking after our own interests instead of the interests of others and the interests of our master. One particularly compelling example of this that I saw in Sam James's biography came after a really rough patch in his ministry. He had been on the field a number of years and he had been robbed. His seminary that he had started had been robbed. His car, you know, had been attacked and there were belongings that had been stolen from him. He was under threat. The military was constantly persecuting people around him and making his life difficult. And thing after thing kept piling up where he basically confessed to the Lord one night in deep prayer that he essentially no longer loved the people that he had been called to serve. And so he was filled with anger. And he was filled with just this angst, feeling like a failure as a missionary to the Lord. And so he got down on his knees one night and he prayed. He confessed this lack of love and he asked for God's help. And do you know how God answered him? He said he heard it as clear as day. He said that the Lord came to him and said, My son, you're not in Vietnam because you love the Vietnamese people. You are here because I love them. And I want to love them through you. Why do I share that story? Well, because he comments that he learned through that experience that human love is fragile. Because of our self-interest often being geared towards ourselves, we forget the role that Christ has called us to. We need to minister out of a love that is foreign to us, that comes from above, that only Christ can work in our hearts. And it's only when we love people with God's love, the type of love that serves and asks nothing in return, that we can love the unlovable. Are there people like the Vietnamese in that story that you find difficult to love, whether it's in our city or maybe even around the world? Could be in your workplace, could be even in your own family. Are there people that you have found it difficult over and over again to talk to, let alone share Christ with, because they just make you angry and they're constantly going against you in everything you say and you do. I think each of us can probably think of a person or maybe even a category of people who fit into that characterization. Is not often our first response anger in those circumstances? I think so because, remember, our hearts are geared selfishly towards ourselves. And so maybe it's time for us to also confess that we lack the type of love that Jesus had, the type of compassion that Jesus had for the lost. We shouldn't be surprised, as Sam James also goes on to say, that believers act as non-believers, that non-believers rather act as non-believers. This shouldn't surprise us, brothers and sisters. When they attack us, when they persecute us, or maybe when they give us that glaring look at the workplace, Our first response shouldn't be one of anger. It should be the same type of look that Jesus gave to the city of Jerusalem as he was approaching it, filled with compassion and filled with tears because they are sheep without a shepherd. Kevin, as I was talking about this passage, sent me a quote from a Puritan named William Perkins that I think characterizes this type of loving service that's rendered out of this abundance of love that comes from Christ himself. He wrote, Christians must be as candles that spend themselves to give light to others. We can only spend ourselves if we have a well of something to be spent. And that well of compassion comes from Christ and from knowing Him, being appreciative of His grace first and then extending that grace of others. 
But it wasn't all about emotion alone for Paul. Our hearts are fickle. Our emotions are weak. For Paul, the mission was focused not on emotion alone, but on a message, which leads us to our next characteristic. Servants of the Lord also teach boldly. Look again at Acts 20, 20 through 21. He says, look how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That word that uh, Luke uses there, that shrinking back, means to withhold. Sometimes it means to just to hold back. And it could be possibly for fear, uh, but it also means to, to withhold certain pieces of information because maybe you don't deem it as worthwhile. And so Paul says, my ministry among you Ephesian brothers and among the churches that I have planted has not been like that. I have not shrunk back from anything of God's counsel that God entrusted to me to share, no matter the cost. You see, Paul was radically committed to healthy doctrine. I mean, this brother wrote most of the New Testament. You couldn't look at Paul's ministry and say that he did not care about doctrine. And he was committed to both its defense and its spread. And as a result, he was bold, filled with boldness, because he knew that this message was the message that Christ had entrusted to him, because it's the only power that can save souls. What is the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus Christ was sent into the world fully God and fully man. And he lived a perfect life. And even though he had no sin in his life, he went to a sinner's death on the cross, making full atonement through his death on the cross in place of sinners like you and me. That anyone who would look upon the cross of Christ and see the bloody Savior as sufficient to make payment for all of our sins, both past, present, and future, and trust that that Uh, offering was satisfying to God because of his glorious resurrection from the dead after three days. The Bible says that if you believe that message, you can be saved. You can have your sins transferred. You can have your guilt transferred off of yourself and given to the substitute who is given for you that you may not walk into eternal suffering that you are due for your sin, but instead you can walk with confidence and with joy into eternity because Christ is your Savior. That's the gospel. And Paul knew it. And Paul believed it. Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Paul knew that it's God's word that shapes his people into the image of his beloved son. That's why he wrote these words to Timothy from 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. Paul knew there was no other message by which people's eternities could be altered. So he was radically committed to teaching it boldly. Brothers and sisters, this is helpful for us because in this day, in this age, do you think we're going to be tempted to shy away from sharing the gospel? You better believe it. The world is growing only increasingly more hostile to the gospel of Christ and to the truths that are found in God's word. May we be like Paul and not shrink back. This word, brothers and sisters, is the only thing 
that the Spirit has chosen to use as we testify to its truth to bring people over from death to life, to alter their eternal trajectory from eternal wrath to eternal joy in the presence of their Savior. We're going to be tempted to shirk back our responsibility and to not proclaim the entire counsel of God's word because certain aspects are not palatable to the world around us. Don't fall into that temptation with gentleness and respect, as Peter writes later in his epistle. Let's teach the gospel and not shy away from its truth. But Paul was not just radically committed to the proclamation. He was also radically committed to obeying the Spirit to make sure that that gospel would go wherever he called him to take it. So this leads us to our next mark of a servant. Servants obey willingly. Look at verses 22 through 23. And now behold, he tells the Ephesian elders, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Again, Paul's ministry is marked by this constant suffering and these constant afflictions. Listen to what Paul says himself in 2 Corinthians about his ministry. You've heard it before, but it bears repeating. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four and onward, he says, Five times I have received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Think about those whip being struck on his back over and over again. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, spent a day and a night in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from the fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Much persecution and opposition faced Paul in his ministry in fulfillment of what God said at the very beginning of his ministry where he said, I will teach him the suffering that he must endure for my name's sake. As a matter of fact, the persecution as he goes to Jerusalem was so bad that later on in chapter 21, you don't have to flip there, but when Paul was in Caesarea making his final leg journey to Jerusalem, a prophet of the Lord comes in the Spirit, his name's Agabus, and even declares how Paul would be bound and delivered over to the Gentiles in that city. It resulted in the entire church there even encouraging him not to go. But listen to how Paul responds in Acts 21.13. He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I'm not only ready to be imprisoned, but even willing to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. As we come back to Acts 20, we realize what a faith step this is for Paul. He knew that persecution and affliction would await him, but he embraced it because he was willing to obey wherever the Lord called him. So the question for us is, are we likewise willing to obey, to go wherever the Lord would call us in service to Him? It may not look exactly like Paul, but He may be calling you to a difficult conversation at your workplace. 
He may be calling you to be a little more bold with that family member that you've been loving and praying for. He may be calling you to show up to our outreach this Saturday and to even take the first faith step of going door to door to invite people to join us here at First Baptist on Easter for Sunday morning. If any of these acts of obedience cause you to fear, to give you concern, I think some of it may be because often we pursue, again, our own comfort instead of obedience to the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is that Paul knew that he was going to face persecution, and he did it anyway. But brothers and sisters, don't we often fall into the trap of pursuing comfort and ease and then baptizing it as the will of the Lord? Don't we often say, Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go, but man, it would look awful great if it looked really easy. Sometimes we will say even that if the Lord's calling us to something difficult, that that is a sign from the Lord that we ought not to do it. In Paul's case, the fact that it was difficult was the exact sign that he was. We cannot say that just because something is difficult, that it's not the will of the Lord. And Paul knew that because Paul, used, Paul knew that the Lord Jesus Christ uses suffering to advance his gospel in ways that we could never even imagine were we to trust our own wisdom and our own intellect and our own devices ourselves. And so are you willing to take that next step of faith? I heard a pastor say it once this way, the most important step of faith is the next one you take. I love that. Are you willing to take that next faith step, even if it means it's risky, even if it comes at a cost? And will you do so trusting your king that Jesus is with you and that he will empower you for whatever good work he's called you to. And this leads us to our final characteristic of a servant. Servants of the Lord sacrifice joyfully. Look again at verse 24, Paul's capstone of the section of his commendation to the Ephesian elders. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish the course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul combines two analogies here. He says his life is, a, is like a race, a course to be run, and his ministry is a task to be accomplished, and he is dead set on being faithful in both. Paul is single-mindedly devoted to what God had called him to do, how could he have this single-minded devotion despite all the persecution and the trials that would come his way? I think at the end of the day, a powerful thing that compelled Paul along in ministry was not any promise about life in this world, but it was the promises of the life that we would enjoy in the next. Listen to how Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 through 10, what that life is like. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted for loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, brothers and sisters, Satan is going to convince us that true joy comes from finding our satisfaction and our delight in this world. And Paul knew that. And so he rebuts those evil attacks with the truth that if you are in Christ, you may experience suffering in this world, but that suffering, as Paul says later to the Corinthians, is but a light and momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. You see, if you're in Christ today, brothers and sisters, you not only have received the full forgiveness of your sins, but you have been guaranteed through the promise of the Holy Spirit and the raising of our Savior as the first fruits from the dead to receive a resurrection body on the day of judgment when Jesus returns. All of your tears, all of your trials, all of your sufferings in that moment will fade away for eternity. And you will enjoy the presence of the king forever and ever, completely free from the burdens and the sins that entangled us and marked our race this side of heaven. And Paul knew that and he looked to that day and he eagerly awaited hearing the words from his Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. He knew that the suffering of this world was nothing compared to the eternity that await him. As Paul was looking to his death, he pens these words to Timothy close to the end of his ministry. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love and look forward to the Savior's appearing? Then you can sacrifice joyfully as well. So as we come to a close now, I want to leave you just with a few applications. As you know, it's the elders' desire for our church to grow in the external journey of gospel advance. We have been eagerly praying as a church and we are still praying for the Holy Spirit to pour out his blessing on this congregation, resulting in a durable culture of evangelism that would result in many testimonies of people coming to faith in Christ through patterns of members of our church engaging with the lost in unique and powerful ways and then seeing people cross over from death to life. We eagerly desire that this baptismal font behind me is filled Sunday after Sunday with our King Jesus as uh, working ahead of us as he works through us to redeem a lost people from this city for himself. That's our hope. That's our prayer. We don't do it for the numbers. We do it for the glory of our King. And we want to invite you to be a part of that with us. And there's many more things the Lord may be calling you to that we talked about in the sermon already. But the question I want to leave you with as we think about all of those things is, are you truly a servant of the king? Do you want to have this type of ministry? Maybe not the exact same kind, but this type of faithfulness that Paul had. To be marked as a servant like Paul was, I think we need to do a couple of things, a few things. Number one, surrender. Surrender. At the end of the day, Paul knew that Jesus is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. 
You can obey him now or you can answer him on judgment day. So why not obey him now? Surrender to him. If there's a sin pattern that's been besetting you, allowing you to take away your joy in Christ, surrender. If there's a fear you have in proclaiming the excellencies of the Savior that you love, surrender. If there's a concern you have that you think the Lord is not able to meet, surrender. And to whom are we surrendering? We're surrendering to a powerful king, yes, but we're surrendering to a good shepherd as well. You see, Paul may have been an excellent example, but the best example of everything we've been talking about is Jesus Christ himself. There is no one who labored more humbly, for Jesus Christ was in the form of God and yet did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. There is no one who loved more selflessly because day in and day out, our Savior ministered to the needy and to the lost and gave them the hope of eternal life and then even went to the cross on their behalf. There was no one who taught more boldly than our Savior, Jesus Christ. It was uh, mentioned about him that no one taught like this man taught because he taught with the very words of God. And no one obeyed more willingly than Jesus. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. At the Garden of Gethsemane, he even said, Father, if it can be this way, take this cup and take it away from me. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. And so compelled by all of that, Jesus modeled better than anyone else what it means to sacrifice joyfully because for the joy set before him, he went to the cross, despising its shame, knowing that through his sacrifice in our place, he was making an inheritance for the Lord forever. And we are that inheritance. And so surrender to him and then obey. Number two, whatever he's calling you to do, do it. Obey. You may not have all the answers, and it may be risky, but I believe that if you step out in faith, the Lord will empower you for the good works he set before you to do. And then lastly, it's an interesting thing, but I'm going to leave you with it. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because the truth is, brothers and sisters, that if you surrender to this good king, and you use your life in obedience to him, you pour yourself out like Paul did, you simply won't regret it. Because the more you're like your Savior in his suffering, the more you also enjoy his presence and his fullness and his sustaining grace. So surrender, obey, and rejoice. At the end of his book, Sam James details how he and his wife needed to retire to come off the field because of their old age and because of health issues that they had been beset with. He closes the book with this thought. He says, but our hearts are still burdened for and our eyes are still looking out toward a broken and wounded world which so desperately needs healing. And he asks this question, who will take our place out there? May we all prayerfully ask the Lord to help us to take up the mantle of servants in praise of our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, as we even look at the example of Paul and even more so the example of Christ, I'm sure each of us is keenly aware of ways that we're deficient. But Lord, you give more grace. And we thank you for that. 
Would you please help us, Father, to be willing to go wherever you would call us to go? Would you help us, Father, to be willing to pursue holiness in every pattern, in every way you would desire us to pursue holiness? Would you please help us to surrender, to obey, and to rejoice as we endeavor to serve our King? Lord, we know that on Judgment Day, we simply will not regret a single expenditure of time, energy, or money rendered unto you. Help us to labor for that day and help us to go out in power with boldness, without any fear of man, because you're with us every step of the way. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and ask these things in your name. Amen.